0: The scriptures clearly indicate who the allies of Russia are when the king of the north or Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, comes down into the land of Israel. Daniel indicates the nations that will walk in stride with the king of the north are as follows. In Daniel chapter 11 verse 43, He shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Now the New King James Version translates this phrase, shall follow at his heels, while the ESV has, will follow his train. The complete Jewish Bible translates it, will be subject to him. So we can see here that Libya and Ethiopia, or Cush, will be following along with the Russian king of the north being subject to him. The modern word for this relationship would be hegemony, defined as leadership or dominance, especially by one country over others. Now, Ezekiel adds a little bit more detail. We read in Ezekiel 38, verses five to seven, that there will be Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, All of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togarmah, the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Be thou prepared, and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. So Ezekiel includes Persia or Iran in the mix and also states that Russia will be a guard unto the nations that are assembled unto it and will work to prepare both itself and these nations for the coming conflict. Now the word guard is defined by the theological wordbook of the Old Testament as to exercise great care over. It is used in both the sense of guarding someone in a prison and also keeping a flock. It protects, but also maintains its leadership or dominance over. Well, as we have seen, watching Russia's role in the Middle East over the past little while, it is exercising its hegemony over the nations like Iran and Syria. It has moved to protect them from Western interference, but also has kept them securely within its circle of influence. We see this with Russia's move to protect Iran from further American-sponsored international sanctions. We see this with Russia's military involvement in Syria to ensure its continued influence in the area of the Middle East. And we also see it with Russia's involvement in the civil war in Libya. This past week, Russia's involvement in Libya was ratcheted up a couple of notches. Libya is an ancient nation. It was mentioned in the Bible before the Roman Empire even existed. It was the home of the Phoenicians following the fall of Tyre. This would develop into the Carthaginian Empire, whose famed leader Hannibal would cross the Alps and attack Rome. It was ruled by the Ptolemaic Greeks. It was the breadbasket of Rome during the days of the empire. When the empire dissolved, it was the base of the Vandals who plundered Rome. It was overrun by Islam in the 7th century and ruled by the Ottomans in the 15th century. Italy invaded Tripoli and would form a colony there until the Second World War when the Italian-German forces were defeated by the British. In 1969, the government of Libya was overthrown by General Muammar Gaddafi, and Gaddafi was under the Russian sphere of influence during much of the Cold War. Libya has the 10th largest oil reserve of any nation on the planet and consequently is of great interest to Russia. Gaddafi ruled until the Arab Spring of 2011 when he was deposed. Since Gaddafi's overthrow, Libya is divided between two rival factions. First, there is the UN-sponsored General National Congress or GNC located in Tripoli that was put in place following the removal of the former dictator General Gaddafi. Opposed to this is the House of Representatives located in the east in Tobruk. The Libyan National Army is the military arm of the House of Representatives and is led by Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar. Now, These two factions have been engaged in constant warfare, pushing each other back and forth. For a while, Haftar's army were experiencing moderate successes, pushing into Western Libya. Haftar's army was supported by Russian mercenaries. The Washington Post reported, Russia has avoided a direct military presence in Libya, unlike Syria, where Russian air forces, navy, and other units aided Moscow's longtime ally President Bashar al-Assad. Instead, Russia last year deployed mercenaries to back Hiftar, achieving its strategic objectives under a cloak of deniability. About 1,200 of the Russian fighters were reportedly from the Wagner Group, controlled by a businessman with close ties to the Kremlin. Russia wants a foothold in Libya, and that's a fact, said Russian military analyst Pavlev Felgenhauer of the Jamestown Foundation. In Syria, in 2015, there were deliberate decisions to begin a major operation to deploy forces, Fagenhauer said. Here, there are different opinions on how to proceed, and it's not clear that there has been a decision to do in Libya what has been do- done in Syria, end quote. Well, this has sparked criticism from the West of interference in Libya's internal affairs, forgetting, of course, that Obama sent NATO jets to help oust Gaddafi. Haftar's armies had been reaching Tarhuna, beginning the siege of Tripoli, only 65 kilometers away in April of 2019. Well, these past few weeks have seen significant losses by Haftar's armies. The Washington Post reported this last week Russia's ally in Libya is battered by defeats, but Moscow has wider goals of expanding its influence. The Post went on to report... Russia's ally in Libya, rebel commander Khalifa Hiftar, has suffered a string of defeats in recent months, as his militias tried to oust the UN-backed government in Tripoli so he could install himself as Libya's ruler. On Friday, forces of the Tripoli government, supported by Turkey and others, seized control of Tarhuna, the last stronghold of Hiftar's fighters in the country's west. The recapture of the city, about 40 kilometers or 40 miles southeast of Tripoli, could mark a final blow to Hiftar's siege of Tripoli and his bid to expand beyond his power base in eastern Libya. Well, what is of great interest here is that Turkey has become the main boots on the ground military support for the Tripoli government. The Post reported. Turkey, however, has ramped up its military aid to the UN backside, deploying attack drones to drive back Hifter's forces. It also sent in up to 13,000 mercenaries, according to the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights, many of them Syrian fighters who were allied with Turkey against Assad. End quote. Well, at the time of the end, the prophet Daniel details Russia's move against Turkey, the hymn of verses 40 and on in Daniel chapter 11. We read in verse 40 the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. So the proxy war in Libya between Turkey and Russia is a sign of things to come. Russia has already involved itself in Syria. Also, part of the northern confederacy is now involving itself militarily in Libya. Remember, Ezekiel's description of Russia was to be a guard unto those nations which march with it or fall under its hegemony, including Libya. This week saw the arrival of Russian MiGs in Libya, painted over to disguise them, as they did in the Crimean War. CNN reported, Russia, far from abandoning Haftar, is doubling down. As the bedraggled convoy withdrew from the desolate airbase, the Kremlin had a surprise in store. Within a couple of days, Russian combat aircraft arrived in eastern Libya, glinting silver at two remote desert airfields. The U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM, said the jets, a total of 14 MiG-29s and Su-24s, had flown from Russia via Iran and Syria, while in Syria they'd been stripped of their markings. AFRICOM said the aircraft were likely to provide closer air support and offensive fires for the Wagner fighters. Russia is truly being a guard unto them, as he has been to Iran and Syria. Russia is looking to reassert itself as a world power. CNN went on to report, Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace said Putin is displaying an increasing appetite for risk, filling the vacuum left by the Trump administration. We're seeing a much wider pattern of Russian opportunism across both the Middle East and other parts of the world, far from Russia's direct borders, he said in a video comments on the Carnegie website. Quote. Well, this is exactly what we expect from the scriptures. I mean, the CNN article went on to state, The commander of AFRICOM, General Stephen Townsend, said of the Russian move, just like I saw them doing in Syria, they are expanding their military footprint in Africa using government-supported mercenary groups. Beyond the Libyan context, Afrikan told CNN, If Russia is allowed to effectively shape the ultimate result of the Libyan contact- conflict, the U.S., and especially NATO and Europe, will not like the outcome. A senior Western diplomat said he had been surprised by Moscow's move. That the Russian intervention went from mercenaries on the ground to jet fighters is quite brazen and astonishing, the diplomat told CNN, end quote. Well, this is not that amazing when you have the light of scriptures shining on the situation. As the world has its attention focused on coronavirus and the riots in America, Russia has its focus elsewhere. The Bible gives a clear indication of the eventual outcome. As the nations of the world prepare, we must prepare ourselves for the return of Christ. Now, as a footnote, we would like to comment on the reaction of some to last week's Bible in the news. The presenter was not being political, but merely commenting on the politics of the age in which we live. Looking at the world through the lenses of the scriptures is never going to be politically correct, nor popular with the world. Remember the words of Christ, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John fifteen verses eight to nineteen. The whole world is gripped with a spirit that has become a spirit of madness in many quarters. Protests against inequality and oppression have given way to riot, looting, murder, civil unrest, and a concerted attempt to remove the powers that be. It should be noted that many people have commented on the uprising as being agenda-driven. The Prime Minister of the UK defended Winston Churchill. The National Post reported on Friday, Johnson called it absurd and shameful that the Churchill statue was at risk of attack. Yes, he sometimes expressed opinions that were and are unacceptable to us today, but he was a hero, Johnson said. Well, this past week, I happened to catch a clip of an interview on CBC. A reporter interviewed an African-American actor, Clark Peters, who was starring in some new film about African-Americans fighting in Vietnam. He made a comment about the current reaction in America to Floyd George's death that caught my attention. He stated, looking at George on the ground, he was, as you know, well, African-American people mean nothing to this government, and this isn't totally racial. This is more about class. This is about the haves, the have-nots, and the have-too-much, and those who have too much don't know what to do with their time besides use those people below them as fodder to get whatever they need to continue to have more than they need for greed, and in doing so, they've pitted people against each other end quote. Well, even Peters, an American actor, sees what is going on that it's not all about race. It's about class. It is about liberty, equality, and fraternity. It is about the frog spirits of revelation, even though most people of the world don't know what they are or how they operate. Certainly, Peters would know nothing about them. Well, there's a lot of inequality and oppression in the world. There has always been, and until Christ's return, there always will be. The whole notion of rewriting history is a dangerous one. Do we hear cries to erase the Caesars from history because they trod down the Jewish people? Do we hear mobs calling for the Colosseum in Rome to be torn down because it was built by Jewish slaves? Where are the crowds calling for the Jiju Church in Rome to be torn down? It proudly houses statues commemorating the Jesuit persecution of Bible believers. Persecution and oppression are wrong and have been going on for centuries. As Bible believers, we have to step away from the charged emotion of the moment and consider what manner of persons we ought to be, not what everybody else is doing. Several years ago, we saw the Arab Spring. Many people in the Arab nations were being oppressed by the rulers they were under. Yet, it is well documented that the CIA and others fomented the unrest to bring about political change they wanted to see in the world for their own selfish reasons. In some cases it worked, in most cases it backfired. For instance, Syria, Libya, Yemen and others. Rulers may or may not have been removed, but the countries took a turn for the worse and people's lives became much more tenuous. At the time, articles were written, Bible in the news podcasts were made, study days were given, but there was not a lot of backlash like there is today. Why? It is the same basic forces at place then as it is now, just different hands are on the levers. Well, what about our protest? We have to realize that as Bible believers, it's not our place to advocate for social change. All human governments are corrupt as they are ruled by men and women made of flesh with carnal minds. There are some basic principles at play here. Number one, human nature is corrupt no matter what the color of the skin might be. Whether it is an Arab government, an African government, an Indian government, a Canadian government, American government, a British government, a native government, a Christian government, a Muslim government, they're all corrupt. How do we know this? Well, the Bible still tells us, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 reads, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 7 verse 21 to 23 tells us that from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and defile the man. So number two, mankind's government, no matter what the form, communists, socialists, capitalist, humanist, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, all enforce laws that are contrary to God's law. How do we know this? Well, again, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the carnal or fleshy mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Number three, It's not our place to protest or resist the current governments as they are put in place by God. Paul told this to the disciples in the first century who underwent horrific persecutions. He wrote in Romans chapter 13 verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation." Well, the word resist is defined by Strong's syncordance as to range in battle against, to oppose oneself, to resist. The low Nuda English uh, lexicon defines it as to oppose someone involving not only a psychological attitude, but also the corresponding behavior, to oppose, to be hostile towards, to show hostility. So resisting the government would bring condemnation on the disciples. So why would we want to join in? As we see the world rise in hostility to government and authority, we cannot participate. Even if what is happening is wrong, our place is not to involve ourselves in social issues. We are not going to change the world government today. Sometimes, what governments do is wrong and it shouldn't change our attitude. Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 2, verse 17 to 24. He says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So point number four. Why do we not involve ourselves in politics today? Well, Christ answers this question in John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. This is not our country. This is not our war. This is not our cause. Even though we or people close to us may be victims of the policy of the government. John Thomas, reflecting years ago on the notion of believers involving themselves in politics of the day, wrote the following. A saint, who is one indeed, as well as name, cannot condescend to subject himself to the conditions necessary to obtain the favor of the political mob, whether that mob be a mob of aristocrats or a mob of what these call the swinish multitude. He cannot, I say, condescend as a son of the deity, A brother of Jesus Christ and a king and a priest elect for God to seek the favor of the dead in trespasses and sins whose votes and patronage are indispensable to his exaltation to the heavenlands in which he may figure by the eloquence of his speech or the gaudy decorations of a court as a star of the first or an inferior magnitude. No saint could, by any other possibility than that based upon apostasy, consent to occupy the papal chair, or to fill an archepiscopal, or other ecclesiastical or secular throne. The heaven in which these seats of glory, honor, wealth, and power exist is infected with such malarious and poisonous exaltations of sin's flesh that he could not breathe them and live and move and have continued healthful spiritual existence in the deity. Fortunately for the saints, this heaven is shut against them, its door bolted, locked, and barred to keep out all who will not fall down and worship the Satan, who is prince of the Ariel and bestows its glories upon whomsoever he approves, End quote. Well, the Lord faced the temptation of involving himself in the governments of his day, and he resisted. We read in Luke chapter 4, The devil taketh him up into an high mountain, showeth unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will give it, if thou wilt therefore worship me, shall all or all shall be thine. Well Christ's answer is the pattern for us to follow. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. This is the answer for why we don't join in politics or protest today. Now, number five. Social protests are against God's law. Yes, that's what Paul tells Titus when he says in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawler but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Well, some may argue the cause is just, But it doesn't change the command of God to speak evil of no man and to be subject to the principalities and powers to obey the magistrates and certainly not to be a brawler like the rioters we have seen in the past few weeks. The problem with mob mentality is that after a short while, nobody even knows why they are rioting. This is certainly true in Paul's day when a riot shook Ephesus. We read in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, the whole city was filled with confusion. And having called Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theatre. By the time we come to verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Well, this is what happens. After a while, nobody seems to know the reason for the riot. The mob is just possessed with madness. Well, the sixth point. Generally speaking, governments are actually put in place by God for our sakes to keep a peaceful society. We read in Romans 13, verse 3, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon the very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now the word minister is defined by Strong's concordance as a public minister, a servant of the state. So how can we be calling to defund the police when God has put them in place for our protection? The Bible has been removed from society. Without it, all men will act without conscience and become like the animals they really are. So remove law enforcement and where will we be then? Now point number seven. God is a racist. He has chosen the Jewish race, the seed of Abraham. It is only through this nation and specifically Abraham's son Jesus Christ that men can be blessed. As Jesus clearly told the Samaritan, her religion, he said, was pointless. John four twenty two. he said, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, the only way to find salvation is through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, through whom the promises to Abraham are extended to all nations. The promise we read of in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. God has given a general call to all men to repent and to come to God on his terms. As we read in Second Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, as far as God is concerned, all men are the same. As Paul describes in Acts 17 verse 26, God hath made of one blood, All nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and have determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of them. He views all mankind equally, and his view of mankind is expressed by the Apostle John in 1 John 5 verse 9, where he says, The whole world lieth in wickedness. It doesn't matter what our race, our color, our creed. God's view is that the whole world is lying in wickedness and consequently he's condemned it to death. But at the same time, he has invited all to find life. God doesn't discriminate, but invites all to participate regardless of race, sex, or status as we read in Galatians 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, point number eight. One thing God does is to require all men to repent. The mission of the saints right now is to spread that message. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ commanded his disciples in Mark 16 verses 15 to 16. He said to them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. He didn't tell them to organize rallies, to change society. He told them to preach and change individuals. Well, there will come a time when the saints will be dramatically involved in changing society. The fact remains that we relook to this in the future. The political heavens and the earth of today are soon to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in 2 Peter 3, verse 7. The heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The political heavens and the earth of today are not our responsibility. Instead, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells Righteousness. We look to the kingdom age to bring in a righteous government. While we don't involve ourselves in the politics of this age, they do hold great interest for us because we see God's hand at work bringing about his will. As we read in Daniel 4 verse 17. To the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will, and he sets up over it the basest of men. Are things rough right now? Well, yeah, they are. I mean, consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, 18 to 24, he says, "I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not to be worthy, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by the hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees... Why doth he yet hope for it? So the entire world groans and struggles in pain waiting for the coming of Christ when the hope of Israel will save it, when the king of Israel, the righteous judge, will go forth as was prophesied in Isaiah. We read in chapter 11, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The corrupt governments of this world will be brought down, and those who have sought to deceive and oppress, such as the Catholic harlot of Revelation, also known as the false prophet, who along with the dragon, Russia, and the beast, Europe, will speak the frog spirit doctrine that will gather all nations to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. When the Lord's judgment of this world is brought into play, the rulers of the new political heavens will peal with an almighty cry described by John in Revelation 19 verses 1 and 2. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. We, according to his promise, look with great anticipation for that day when the oppressed will be lifted up with hope, the hope of the promises made to the fathers. For the Bible and the News, this has been Jonathan Bowen joining you.